Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Uh, We have Jay Fouché from Cybersong Sled Dogs. Thank you so much for joining us, Jay. Thank you for having me. So... You have some big plans coming up. You are planning on uh, competing in your first Iditarod in 2022. Can you tell us a little bit more about your kennel and your dogs and how you got started? Okay, well, uh, I've been doing this for, I guess it'll be 19 years later this year. Uh, In 2000, I got my very first Siberian Husky. It was a breed that I had wanted for many years, just... Because, well, for one, they look like wolves a little bit, and I've always loved wolves, but primarily because they're an outdoorsy dog, and at the time, I was doing a lot of hiking and camping, and I didn't have a lot of friends that did that sort of thing to do it with, so I was thinking, you know, companion to do outdoor Mm -hmm. things with. Uh, So I got my first Siberian Husky, and very quickly, as I would be walking her, she'd be leaping and forward like she wanted and trying to pull me down the road uh, like she wanted to be in harness so uh, I started looking for sports to do with her uh, because she was very very active like most Siberian Huskies and uh, I had found you know a variety of things that I was going to do with her in spring fall summer uh, but I was lacking in winter sports so I went Mm -hmm. on the internet and did some searching around and through various searching came across uh skijoring which of course led to looking up mushing and Uh at the time like like many people uh who aren't involved in this sport or know somebody that's involved with it i just thought mushing was done in alaska (laughs) i had no idea that there was such a large uh group of people that were involved in it. And I think it's grown significantly even since I've gotten involved because now you get an awful lot more urban mushers like mm-hmm. your group down there in Georgia yep. um, that just, you know, have various breeds that they bike with or, you know, can across with. That that huge urban mushing thing has really taken off since I got started in the sport. But anyway, uh, I started reading up on mushing. I hooked up with a mentor in New Hampshire and I was extremely hooked pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, it, it also helped. I uh, had a few people saying, oh, well, if you're interested in that, you should watch Iron Will. You know, <laughs> feeding the fire. Yeah. And so, you know, initially I thought I'll just I'm going to ski jor. You know, the fact that I had never cross country skied in my life didn't uh, phase into that. I, I downhill skied. I thought, hey, it's just the same thing, right? You're just going, <laughs> it's different skis. Um, I will say that first winter with uh, the then one year old husky, I did strap on a pair of skis and hated it. <laughs> I don't think I've I don't think I've ever tried skijoring again since then. Bike <laughs> I was just about to ask. <laughs> I did it once and I said never again. My feet went in various directions. It was too hard to stop and slow and yeah. Um I also tried sledding that winter with a small team uh, of borrowed dogs and I mm-hmm. sledded I tried with my one husky but it didn't work so well. Um but 
sledding was just more my thing from the start. And yeah. so I very quickly, uh, the first year or two, I was like, oh, I'll just have two or three dogs and I'll do it on the weekends for fun. And then I went to my first dog sled race and I'm kind of a competitive person by nature. And I just watched those teams racing and I got bit by the racing bug. So from that point, I was like, no, I got to do that. So the second year of getting into mushing, so basically the first Siberian Husky was about a year and a half at that point. Mm-hmm. I, I was still living in Massachusetts and I got a second Husky, a rescue this time. And the first Husky was honestly from a pet store. So um, later on, I looked up her lions and she was just from, you know, backyard breeder or, yeah. or probably a puppy mill type breeder. Um, the second one was a rescue and very quickly, about the same time I got the rescue, I came across uh, a website. I think I was researching a book that I had been reading called Running North, written mm-hmm. by Ann Cook, about George Cook's uh, first or only foray running the Yukon Quest. And by this time, I had been just devouring every book I could get my hands on about dog mushing and watching every movie and in looking things up on the internet and and talking to people. So um, this book, which my stepdad had found and gifted to me, of course, involved mushers right here in New Hampshire. And so I started researching them a little bit and looking things up on the internet, came across a kennel called Kellum Siberians. And they had a number of dogs from those same lines that Ann and George Cook uh, had developed. And they um, some of the dogs in their lineage, the Kellum Siberians, went back to the dogs that uh, I was reading about in this book. And I saw they had a litter coming. And I fell in love with the parents of the litter, the pictures. And so I thought, oh, I'll probably never get on a list for, for one of these puppies, but I'm going to try. So I sent them a very long detailed email. Now, granted, I've been doing this for one entire year at this point, And I really wish I, I, I told them in the past, I, I wish you had saved that first email. Cause I would laugh to read it because I know I had mentioned it was a very long email. And I know I mentioned that I wanted to run the Iditarod someday. And look, here you are today. <laughs> yeah. So uh, needless to say, I guess the email impressed them and they did have an opening on their list and I wound up getting a puppy from that litter. And that was the first one from Sled Dog Lines. Um, Not even six months later, I bought a house up in New Hampshire that ironically turned out to only be a few miles from Kellum Siberians. I became very close friends with them. And uh, so actually now, even now our kennels are very similar lineage because we go back and forth. Like I often breed to their dogs and their males. They've leased females from me or used my some of my males uh, mm-hmm. at stud. They were really my main mentors in the breeding, uh, well, the breeding side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, they helped me out with the first few litters as far as uh, what to do and teaching me about lineage and teaching me about uh, whelping and everything. They, they assisted me with the first few whelpings and for I mean even now I often will run literate you know mating ideas or litter breeding ideas past them Mm -hmm. um 
you know, but a lot of, I mean, most of the time now I can make my own uh, choices, but it, you know, for many years, every breeding I did, I consulted with them to see, you know, you think this is a good one. They think mm-hmm. this is a bad one. Um, and well, breeding you know, is a complicated thing. It's always nice to have other people that, that get it yeah, <laughs> to be able to bounce and, ideas off of. Yeah. And Kim and Kelly Berg, have, even from the time I met them are just like, I say they're walking encyclopedias of uh, Siberian lineage. So, mm-hmm. for, you know, I can retain a lot of that information, but more so on my own dogs. Right. I don't, you know, they know like the backgrounds of a lot of dogs in our dog, you know, that are way behind our dogs. Right. That right. weren't owned by either one of us. So, um, how lucky you know, for you to be able to find such a wonderful mentor right off the bat. It's yeah, they've been an amazing resource and, and, you know, we've become super close friends over the years. And yeah. Yeah. So. so you've right from the start, you knew you wanted to do long distance races. Yes. And uh, okay. I think it just, you know, from the first story I read about Iditarod, the whole idea of uh, not just the racing of the dogs, I think it's the, the whole pitting yourself um, against mother nature, basically. Uh, and camping out there, everything involved with distance racing, that part of it appealed way more from the start than the sprint racing. Yeah. Yeah. And are you, I know with your training runs, you're getting a little bit of that now doing longer runs, kind of being out in the elements. Do some of the other long distance races that you have done put you in a similar position or will the Iditarod be a step, you know, a step above obviously, but, but quite different from others? Yes and no, both. Okay. (laughs) Um, a lot of the races I've done uh, in the past 12 or 13 years have uh, some similarities in the fact, you know, they're checkpoint races. Mm-hmm. You can hit any sort of weather out there. I've been out there and, you know, well below zero with wind chills that are even further below zero. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been on races where mushers have, uh, like half the pool is scratched because the wind chills are so fierce that they're almost afraid of them. And yet I've gone out there. I've been on races where we're running on dirt because there's not a whole lot of snow in certain sections of the trail. I've been, um, you know, on races that have had pretty challenging trails here and there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even with all that experience um, and, you know, the checkpoint experiences, the distance, you know, running 300, 400 mile races, it's still probably, I'm assuming, going to pale to what I'm going to face on a data rod. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's got to take a ball game. <laughs> yeah. That's got to take a huge amount of mental preparedness and a positive outlook to be able to push yourself through those uh, challenging environments. It is. Um, you have to stay positive for the dogs like Mm -hmm. they really feed off of the energy that you're giving off on the runners and i've found that in races i can maintain the more positive attitude more so than i can in training like i i will frequently lose it in you know i'll have my days where i'm frustrated or Mm -hmm. days where i'm just really down or something on training and of course i have plenty of days where i'm up 
you know, that's more than more so that than the other uh, uh, options. But on a race, I think I've got it in my head that I need to stay positive to keep the dogs positive Mm -hmm. because I have seen them early on when I didn't have that uh, going on in my head. and, And before I learned that, I would see the effect it would uh, take on the dogs. If my mood got down and I started to get really discouraged and I started to think we weren't going to be able to do things, I would see the dogs kind of reflect that in their performance. And then other times uh, I've been in races where I've been convinced, you know, early on, like, oh, the dogs can't do this. Look at them. They're just doing terrible. They're just, we're walking and they, they can't finish this race. And then after the fact, I look back and I'm like, uh, actually, I think the dogs were doing fine. That was all in my head. That yeah. was me. I couldn't felt like I couldn't finish the race. So. Yeah. I mean, that's hard. You're out on the trail by yourself, you know, and, and especially when you have all those other ailments uh, and, and weather challenges that you're facing, I, I would imagine that it takes practice to keep yourself in that positive outlook, you know, when you are facing such extreme conditions. I'd, I'd say the biggest contributor to that is the sleep deprivation. I can't say that the sleep deprivation, Mm -hmm. because you start going a couple of nights with, you know, two, three hours of sleep a night and your mind starts playing some really funny tricks on you. Yeah, I bet. I bet. It's it's hard to stay positive sometimes, especially if you're hitting a lot of challenges when you're lacking sleep. Yeah. Do you have any, you know, tips that when you, when you notice yourself starting to get in a negative mindset, is there anything that you find that, you know, brings you back (laughs) from that? I think just the, um, trying to remember that, uh, in past races, uh, where I felt like, uh, I can't get past a challenge and remembering, okay, I did get past Mm -hmm. that challenge. So it's basically the experience. Yeah. A lot of the experience just builds up and and you can look back and say, well, there was this time where I didn't think I could do it and I did it. So it worked out fine. Or, you know, there was this point where everything seemed like it was going wrong and then it turned around and things were fine. Um, You know, there are certainly times where it's a struggle to get yourself out of that mood Mm -hmm. for me anyways. Um, But, you know, I'm always working on trying to improve the state of mind here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, with all dog powered sports, we're a team with our dogs. So training them physically and mentally is part of it. And physical, you know, physically and mentally training ourselves is, is part of that too, making sure that we can be there to support them as well. A lot of times uh, I, I feel as a musher of a, especially of a large team, you are everything, uh, the coach, the nutritionist, the, um, the cheerleading squad, yeah. uh, you have to wear so many hats and, you know, there, there are times when it's very physical, um, you know, so you're also an athlete, yeah. uh, not to the extent that the dogs are being athletes, but it is still a physical, um, challenge, at least whether you're, you know, if you're a bike drawer or ski drawer or on a sled, in the fall, not so much, but mm-hmm. not for me. I'm I'm sitting on a four wheeler in the fall, so I don't yeah. get a whole lot of exercise, except for getting <laughs> off and running up and you know undoing tangles. But yeah, but the rest, especially on a sled, it can be 
very physically challenging at times. It depends on the trail. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as you are preparing, you know, your dogs for some of these long distance races, not necessarily the Iditarod. Um, what, what does a, a daily week look like as you're preparing, you know, how many times are you going out and are you running the full team each time or do you tend to break them up? Uh, well in the fall, um, we're running pretty large strings of dogs on the four wheelers. Um, mm -hmm. and at this point I do for a few years now, I've had, uh, probably 24 to 30 dogs in training in as at the start of fall. So um, it's pretty large teams and usually I can split it into two like 14 dog teams or, or something like that. Um, so, and I usually, I always have a handler or I should say usually have a handler helping me in fall. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been times where I don't. And, uh, but as long as I have a handler that. Um, I can quickly train up to train a team with a four-wheeler. We are going out with the teams maybe four, sometimes five times a week. Okay. Uh, I'd say this past, this fall, it was more like four times a week. Um, just due to issues around here with trail issues and neighbor issues. And um, so, uh, and then... As the season progresses, uh, when we do get on sleds, and that varies depending on where I'm at um, and weather, <laughs> but uh, once we get on sleds, then it breaks down to it, sometimes we're running, you know, eight dog teams or even six dog teams because conditions don't allow for more. And then, then it's a struggle to try and get everybody out um, frequently enough. Uh, hopefully, once we get enough snow, I will bump that up to anywhere from 10 to 14 dog teams. Okay. Right now I have too many dogs to get everybody out at the same time. Um, my handler that I have this year is comfortable running eight to 10 dogs. Okay. Um, occasionally I've taken out 14 uh, if the snow conditions are good, but it's only been like a handful of times that I've been able to take out that many dogs. So we kind of have to rotate who's running. So, yeah. Uh, but, you know, normally in winter, I'll still be getting out four times a week. But once we start racing race season, it's maybe two to three times a week in between the races. Mm -hmm. It just ends next year. It's going to be kicked up a notch for training for Iditarod. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, this so year looking, we've kind of taken it easy um, as opposed to it. So it really depends on what I'm training for right. per year. Here, there are no races that I've signed up for. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, originally I was thinking I was going to train up the dogs to do camping trips, but a lot of things have kind of gotten in the way of that. Yeah. Um, issues with my truck and trailer. So I'm kind of uh, constrained to using local trails and, um, also, the plans to travel to other states and do this are complicated by COVID. So, um, and we've been limited on snow here this year. It's it's getting going now. I just can finally train from my yard on sleds. But mm -hmm. I mean, there have been years where I can train from my yard on sleds after Christmas. And yeah. usually it's sometime in January for it to be the first week of February. That's really late. So that shows you how 
slow our snow year has been this year. Yeah. So, And that obviously puts an impact on your training plans and forces you to right. get a bit creative with how you're running dogs and having to go off property with them too, I imagine. So, you know, basically this year, it's just been about, you know, keeping them muscled up and, and trying to, you know, get some long runs in so I can analyze some of the younger dogs and, and kind of decide who I think has uh, the qualities I want for Iditarod. Mm-hmm. But I'm not pushing them like I do other years. Um, yeah. Focusing on on other, doing other things to prep for the next, I don't know, 14 months, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but in other years, I would be doing a lot more uh, longer runs and training out there yeah. in the winter. Looking ahead to the Iditarod, do you have an idea of what your team looks like and who you're planning on running? Or is that all kind of up in the air as to how they perform over the next 14 months? I know which of the, I I think at this point, yes, I know which will be the core dogs on the team. Um, There are a few that, uh, well, there's a couple right now with, one in particular has a medical issue that we're not, I'm not sure if it's just a temporary thing or a life altering thing. Um, I'm hoping it's just temporary uh, because she's a fantastic yearling um, and she would definitely be part of the group. Uh, another dog, it's been like a last two months of nothing but medical issues here with dogs. Uh, another one just diagnosed with um, epilepsy, which is, a real bummer because she was a super promising two-year-old. Yeah. Um, she finished the UP 200 with the team last year as a yearling. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, so that knocks her out of the Iditarod running. Um, and I've got a couple that um, one's a, about to turn two and the other one is I think four. Um, the four-year-old I acquired, he might actually be five or going on five, but I, I acquired him a year ago, fall, um, as an adult, and I can. This year has been very telling as far as uh, I gave him a year to kind of settle into the team and kind of excuse some of his behaviors <laughs> last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, by this year, I'm like, all right, I have tried my damnedest to correct your uh, some of your behaviors and harness. You just don't have what it takes to be an Iditarod dog. So. Yeah. It's been another dog that would be a likely candidate more as a backup candidate because I don't think he'd be my first choice. Um, He overheated in the fall on my handler's team. So unfortunately, he would still not be my first choice for Iditarod. Uh, He would kind of be the last choice. He does fine in the winters. He has not had any issues this winter, no matter how warm it's been. It's just fall training that he has an issue with. I don't know how he's going to do next year. So, so it's, you know, I have my core team. Definitely. uh, I'd say most of the dogs I raced in the two qualifiers I finished last year will be part of the Iditarod pool next year with the Mm -hmm. exception of a couple that are now going to be too old. Okay. Actually three of them. One of them is like one of my super leaders for so many years and, and, it's going to kill me being be without her. I have been actually yeah. without her this year because she had a litter in November. Um, but up until then, she was still running with the team and, and leading. And, you know, I think if it hadn't been for the litter, she'd probably likely be still leading the team even on snow. Yeah. But 
she's going to be turning 11 by the time we get to Iditarod. So yeah, yeah like right. She, if she were on the team, she'd be turning 11 on the Iditarod because she was born in March. So I'm like, yeah, that's probably pushing it, especially for a Siberian. So. Yeah. So besides age and, you know, health concerns with the dog, what are some other traits that you look at in terms of, you know, temperament and trainability for your dogs as you're starting to put your teams together? Um, well, basically, I mean, temperament, it's kind of an overall thing here. I don't care if the dog is shy, outgoing, friendly with strangers, only likes me. Um, my big thing is that they need to be focused in harness and uh, not fighters yep. in harness. So um, if I have dogs that fight in harness, then, you know, I work with them to try and correct that problem. There have been times in the past where I have had no choice but to wind up placing a dog because they just are a danger mm -hmm. in harness. They just cannot control the fighting. Um, so, you know, despite working with them and occasionally it's just the dog's personality and yep. you just, they just don't get along well with other dogs happens. Um, but yeah, the, the focus is the biggest thing. Most, most Alaskans Huskies that I've uh, run definitely have that focus. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have a mix of Alaskans, Siberians, and then what I call Sebaskans, which are half and half or a mix of the two. Um, so most of the Sebaskans, um, the combo dogs, to have the focus like the Alaskans do. But the Siberians, it's a little tougher um, because uh, just part, partly the breed. Um, I swear some of them have ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> a little distracted. Just the nature of the breed, yeah. Yeah. So, um yeah, I, I like my Siberians to have the same level of focus that my Alaskans do. Um, and that's what one of the things I breed for. And that's definitely what I look for and looking for as far as who's going to be part of the Iditarod pool. Yeah. And some of these dogs that I, you know, know for certain are not going with us with me to Alaska next year. That's the issue is the lack of focus yeah. on the trail. They might yeah. be focused for the first three miles or five miles or even 10 miles, but, um, you know, they are, they lose that focus as the sled runs get longer and mm -hmm. they just, I've seen literally seen Siberians like get what looks like boredom out there on the long runs. It's like, Oh, we're going, we're trotting now. This is boring. I'm going <laughs> to play with you next to me. Hey, Hey, what you are know? you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I literally have one right now that she tries to get all the, you know, whoever she's running with, she tries to get them to play with her during the run. Like she's like leaping on them and nipping them and it's playful stuff. Like she's yeah. literally trying to play with them. And I keep yelling at her, you know, don't <laughs> knock that off, you know, yeah. <laughs> knock it off, focus. <laughs> and she just, she's not getting it. She's almost two. It's not like she's a puppy. So yeah. yeah. So when you're putting together your team, you know, beyond focus and harness, are there different skills that you look for when you're placing them, you know, in lead versus swing versus part of the team or wheel? 
in in some manner, yes. Obviously, leaders have their own set of skills. Uh, right. The best leaders are intelligent enough to um, be able to follow. I mean, literally, they the really intelligent ones know what a trail marker looks like on a, a race. Yeah. Um, they're intelligent enough to have learned G and HAR and G over and all the various commands. Um, they're also confident enough to be up and lead. And you see uh, there are some that just naturally want to be up in front. They want to see what's ahead on the trail. Um, and there are others that just, you know, give them that much freedom up front and they're all over the place and they're turning the team around and they're just, they can't do it. So that's definitely the leadership skill is a quality a leader has to have. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do have the occasional leaders that uh, they'll run in front of the team, but they aren't so great on their commands. We call those trail leaders. You know, they, they're great at doing a trail where you don't have to have a lot of turns. Mm -hmm. Or a lot of times I'll put a leader like that with a leader that does know their commands so they can drag them over right. uh, when need be. But um, usually the front end of the team, it will depend on where I'm running around here. Where I live in New Hampshire, we have a lot of other trail users, mm -hmm. um, like skiers, or in the fall, it could be people walking or biking or, you know, doing God knows what. But in the, <laughs> in the you know, whether, regardless of the season, I think almost every trail or most trails that I use have their risk of coming across people with loose dogs. Mm -hmm. um, so if I know I'm going to be running on a trail with loose dogs, the front half of my team is going to be all the dogs I already know will just run past a loose dog without giving an issue. Yeah. And you know, the ones that are very curious or can be somewhat aggressive towards loose dogs, which does happen, mm -hmm. uh, they're all at the back of the team where they can't cause any trouble because the front of the team will just pull them past. Yeah. Uh, so, but other than that, a lot of times um, I will run uh -huh dogs in swing up near the front of the team. Um, I'll run backup leaders or leaders in training. Mm -hmm. um, and then the rear of the team, <clears throat> um, a lot of times I definitely have good wheel dogs that, in my opinion, a good wheel dog is one that when you're going around, first of all, knows knows how to get under the line and move from side to side on the line um, without tangling themselves up. So if you're going around, like, granted, I'm running long strings of dogs. So sometimes mm -hmm. when you go around a corner, by the time your wheel dogs get around, get to that corner, it's a very tight corner. Um, you need them and the point dogs in front of them to swing you around that corner well. So uh, especially for the wheel dogs, they need to be able to slip under or cross over the line uh, to get around the corner and then go back. Mm -hmm. And I've seen dogs that just learn to do this really well. I don't like running super tall dogs in wheel for that reason, because they have a harder time at it. That um, makes sense. Yeah. And then, of course, your point dogs are supposed to assist your wheel dogs in getting you around a corner without pulling you into it. Uh, I've not really seen dogs in that position actually do that. So mm -hmm. unless they happen to be good wheel dogs, but they still don't seem to do it unless they're in wheels. So, yeah, but I usually mix, I make dogs run in all different positions on the team. Um, always 
like every time I go out, I'm moving dogs around. I do tend to like many people start to rely a little too much on the same good leaders. Mm -hmm. um, I do try to rotate out the leaders once in a while too. And, and, you know, especially in spring or fall, I'll be working with new leaders and training new leaders. Um, but usually by this time, at this point in the season, I have, you know, okay, these are my leaders that I'm focusing on this season. It might be, you know, five or six leaders. It might be more, but I tend to use the same leaders when we're on snow in the, in the middle of the season rather than playing around with new ones. That makes sense. So, so I know that a lot of your qualifying races, or maybe all of them, you've already done for the Iditarod. Yeah. Um, COVID kind of messed up plans for 2021. So we've, we're right. going with 2022. So can you walk us through a little bit of how that qualifying process works? Sure. Um, well, for Iditarod, they want you to do two races that are 300 miles or longer, and one race can be less than that, but it still has to be at least, I believe, 150 miles. So, okay. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so, I actually had done quite a few 250 mile races and 150 mile plus races um, over the years, starting in 2017. But at because I wasn't. Um, specifically aiming for, I, I kind of was I aiming for Iditarod uh, at that point, but I got off the track for a few years due to a back injury. Mm -hmm. And for about four years, I wasn't sure that I could run Iditarod because of the injury. So I stopped really trying to use these races as qualifiers. When mm -hmm. I did, when I did finally finish uh, another 250 mile race and determined had, had managed to figure out how to manage the back issues. Um, after that, I went and looked at the requirements for qualifying for Iditarod and things had changed since in the years that I wasn't paying attention to it, mm -hmm. uh, where now you had to have your race marshal fill out a report card basically for you on while you're running the race and then submit it to Iditarod. Okay. So it turned out that that, I had to kind of start anew at that point because I, I needed those report cards. So the first qualifier I wound up finishing was in 2017 when I finished the John Baird Grease Marathon. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, it was uh, still a 400-mile race. So that was my first one. And then uh, for the next, let's see, two years, two winters, I was attempting to do the remaining qualifiers and, like, just it just became very impossible uh on the east coast to finish qualifiers here um to get the training in first of all there's there's only one here in the northeast and that's mm -hmm. the can-am 250 um and then the other ones are out in the midwest and uh, tend to be earlier or i had signed up for the canadian challenge at one point um and this is up in Saskatchewan, Canada. And I just couldn't get the training in that year. It was, yeah. we were off to a slow start here. I wound up losing my handler and could mid season, couldn't replace him. Um, yeah, it just, for the next two seasons, it was just a struggle to get the rest of the qualifiers done. So finally, 
um, after the second failed attempt year, I said, okay, I can't do this in the Northeast. So last year, um, in October of 2019, it would have been, I went out to Michigan to the UP and I stayed with some friends there who kindly offered to uh, rent me a room and some space in their dog yard. Um, And I stayed there from October through the end of February last winter season. And I was able to finish my qualifiers out there. Um, Ran the Bear Grease a second time because I found out I could use the same race two different years mm-hmm. as two different qualifiers and ran the UP 200 as the last qualifier. So I was finished as of a year ago, February. So nice. And then yeah. how long does that qualifier last? So once you complete your races, how long do you have before? Is there like a deadline to sign up? Uh, they, there isn't anything on their site that says they expire um, at a certain time, but okay. uh, I'm guessing that if too long, of a time goes between your, you know, especially between your last qualifier and the time you decide to run Iditarod, they might have a problem with it. Right. Um, But yeah, since it's my first was in 2017, the last two were last year. I should be okay for next year. Okay. Fingers crossed. Unless they decide to change the rules and then I'm going to have a problem. But (laughs) (laughs) well, we won't put that out there. That won't happen. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, In addition to finishing these three qualifiers, you also have to, that doesn't just guarantee you're in. You also have to have a Iditarod veteran write a letter of basically a letter of recommendation stating that uh, they have, you know, witnessed you training or racing or whatever, um, and that they feel you will be able to complete the Iditarod, that you, you know, have what it takes or know what's involved. Right. Um, and the people that I stayed with in Michigan, uh, Jamie and Justin High, uh, have both run Iditarod in the past. So um, they had, you know, part of the thing when they said, you know, they could uh, I could stay with them, you know, was that they would then be able to witness me training and racing and mm-hmm. one of them could write the letter for me. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's that. And then you still have to get it passed. There's like a review board that reviews the rookie applications mm-hmm. um, and decides whether or not they feel you meet all the qualifications. So they could still, even with all of that, turn around and say, yeah, no, Um I'm not sure what causes them to do that and hopefully they wouldn't, but yep. um, then, <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> then, then the, I believe it's usually the first weekend in December, you have to attend a rookie meeting in Anchorage. Um, okay. And I, it's like one or two days long where I suspect they just overload you with information on everything from the trail and how you need to, prepare and get your bags ready and all the different logistics. And so I will be attending that one in December. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I know so attending so, <laughs> that, and I, I also know that you're planning on going up to Alaska before the race for a little while to allow the dogs time to adjust and to do some training up there too, right? For the entire season. Okay. I'm not receiving you know, it's just too wishy-washy here in the Northeast as far yeah. as training. We've lost a lot of trails in past years, um, you know, both fall trails and winter trails. Um, 
there's there have been more and more restrictions put on mushers, uh, especially those of us that use four wheelers to train in the fall. I've had you know ongoing issues with neighbors, um, and because because we've lost so many trails, one of the things that I'm forced to do in the uh, in the fall is literally use the um, dirt road system around my house to train, which. Right done since I moved here seven years ago and initially wasn't an issue but has become an issue as more and more people with pet dogs have moved into the neighborhood and walk their loose dogs mm -hmm. on the roads during the week um, or even weekend so it's it's just become more and more challenging to train a, a distance team in, in New, New England or New Hampshire in particular um, so I think if I lived in the Midwest it'd be a different story I could train there and go up to Alaska, like, you know, late December, early January, come, you know, do the last month, two months of training up there. Um, some people, you know, like a uh, guy from Quebec last year ran Iditarod and he didn't go up to Alaska until after the UP 200, which is mid-February. So he only went up a couple of weeks in advance, but they can get the training up there that is similar that to what you could get in, you know, the Midwest or Alaska. Right. I can't, you know, I'm lucky if I can start training the beginning of September and then all of September tends to be the last handful of years. So warm that I can't get past a five mile run until late September. And then only if I'm lucky. Yeah. So, and we don't get, you know, most years around here, if I can get on snow before Christmas, I'm very lucky. So, and even then, typically your first few weeks to a month to this year, first month and a half, there's like literally 10 miles of trail available to use and that's it. So you just repeat it over and over and over. So I just can't do it here. Yeah. So long story short, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> with this area. I'm just heading up uh, late summer to Alaska and I've been trying to find a place now to rent. Um, going to be up there from late summer until after long after I did a rod probably. So yeah, I'll stay there for at least a few months after I did a rod. Cause yeah. I hear you don't get your checkpoint bags and stuff back right away. Until May. <laughs> <laughs> it can take a little <laughs> while. Stuff to come back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that sounds like a really smart plan to make sure that you have the time for your dogs to build them yeah. up, you know, so that you do have a safe uh, race. Right. And it, it will acclimate them to, you know, conditions, trails, you know, mm -hmm. uh, temperatures up in Alaska. So. Yeah. Uh, yep. So, as you are preparing for this this big adventure ahead of you, is there anything that looking back 10 years you wish you would have known or wish you would have kind of given yourself some advice on? Oh, so many things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, experience is, you know, always a learning thing. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I wish I could go back uh, 18 years and tell myself to uh not waste so much time, you know, uh, yeah. you know, not, not take it quite so slowly. Um, it's, uh, I, you know, other than that, I, you know, I wish things had moved along a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as, you know, what I've done 
as you know in terms of breedings and and races and learning experience i think the the biggest thing i would probably tell myself is toughen up um, i think it's taken me a long time to learn to get mentally tougher mm -hmm. um, and uh, that is going to be really important next year and i still have my slip-ups where you know my days where i just feel like i can't handle quite enough of the uh you know all the stuff that's being piled on mm -hmm. uh, but i've gotten uh enormously better at controlling that aspect of it and and i think learning to lean on myself you know over the last especially the last couple of years i've started learning to do things for myself that i always relied on other people to do and yeah. i mean some of it's like really simple stuff you know learning to you know fix the four-wheeler myself learning to use a chainsaw i mean yeah. that that sounds like a really tiny thing but i was terrified of chainsaws for the longest time and i would i had one but i'd always find a guy and make him use it mm -hmm. <laughs> or a handler here you use it but um especially this year i've been out on the trail cutting trees down you know clearing trail and doing it by myself and you know learning to overcome the fear of of that so i think even even something like that that has nothing to do with dog mushing yeah uh, is still character building and distance racing requires a really strong like mental attitude i think yeah. and and strong character because there's so many more challenges that you have to face out there mm -hmm. that then I feel are in sprint mushing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and you're out there by yourself with your dogs. So being able yeah. to, um, you know, fend for yourselves, so to speak, does yeah. take a lot of that mental yeah. toughness. Yeah. And I, I feel even from the start, I've been good at getting myself out of some pretty tricky situations when mm -hmm. I'm out on the trail. Um, things that crop up, uh, you know, that's not to say that I won't still get out there and occasionally have moments of sheer terror where I am frozen because yeah. I'm afraid if I move, I'm going to like lose the team or, you know, I think that's that. And seriously, that's probably my biggest fear out there. And probably I, I would imagine if you talk to a lot of mushers, that's everyone's biggest fear. Um, I don't, out there, I'm not usually worried about injuring myself or, mm -hmm. or the, you know, getting too cold or there have not really been a whole lot of times out on the runners where I fear like for my life or anything. Mm -hmm. I am just always in terror of losing the team. And, yeah. and it's, I mean, it's not even about losing the team and, Hey, I'm stuck out here all by myself it's losing the team and you spend, when I have lost the team, I spend that entire time until I get back to them yeah. worrying about, you know, are they okay? Is, is a dog being dragged? Is, yeah. uh, is a, a young dog being, uh, going too fast and, and going to be scarred for life mentally because they overran them or, you yeah. know, are they, are they heading back to the truck or are they heading off into the wilderness and, and am I going to find them again? And, you know, so it's just all this goes through your head over yeah. and over again. And that can be like the longest period of time um, trying to get to them. And I've had plenty of times where I've lost the teams and gone through that enough that 
you know, that, that you remember that, all those emotions. Yes, yes. That, I swear every time I step on the runners or or get into a situation where I'm, I feel like I might lose the team because, you know, we're an example. Um, I'm stuck. The sled is stuck off the trail. I can't sink a hook. But the only way to unstick the sled is to literally step off the runners uh-huh. and get into a position where I can move the sled. But, you know, the minute you lift it out, they're going to yank it forward. Yep. And yeah. So, you know, I find myself in those situations, sometimes just completely frozen in fear. Yeah. And it takes me a few minutes to literally just get up the guts to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I imagine that some of your prep too, knowing that that could happen and experiencing it, I imagine a lot of your prep goes into how to prevent situations like that from happening. Sometimes there is no preventing it, but yeah. Uh, but of course the more, it, honestly, some of the prep work that I've been doing for the last two or three winters, knowing that I'm heading towards this goal, mm-hmm. um, has been to deliberately go down, do some of the stuff that I never would do in past years, uh, deliberately try to do the toughest trails or the sketchiest conditions or, you know, things that would scare the crap out of me in prior years. Um, And the more I do things like that, I feel like the the more confidence I get as a sled driver and a musher, and that helps. Because, you know, I know that I've gotten myself out of some sticky situations before or done some really crazy stuff before. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a few crazy things we did on the trails in Michigan last year that I would never have done in the past. Like coming off a power line trail, we had enormous amounts of snow. There was like probably a seven or eight foot high snowbank. Oh, my gosh. Uh, side of a road we would come off the power lines on off this thing and take a sharp left-hand turn so coming down a really huge bank i mean we would you know shovel it out and and groom it out but you still as you were coming off that thing that was fast yeah and um, and then to turn so quickly onto a plowed road yeah so once you hit that road if you if you wipe out and fall there's you're probably not stopping until you know you get off the trail on and it was a probably i think a quarter of a mile of running down this plowed road before you turn off again mm-hmm. and uh there was another a couple of sections one at the beginning of the season where you had to go through this little windy section and it was full of roots and trees and uh few i flipped the sled a few times in that section um Another really curvy section connecting two trails that I flipped the sled every time I went through and until I finally uh, GoPro'd myself going through it and uh-huh. then went back and, and watched the GoPro video so I could see what what was coming and what was I doing uh-huh. wrong and, and analyze, okay, so I need to not be on the brake here and be on the brake here and I'm doing it backwards and that's why I'm flipping there and yeah, so we did some pretty crazy stuff last year. I feel like I did some crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, that helped an awful lot. So Yeah. Well, you know, and, once you have an experience, you know, it it makes it easier to navigate it a second time. And especially if you're using something like GoPro footage where you get that feedback and say, okay, how can I change what I'm doing 
to make it easier to navigate, you know, or smoother to navigate the next time. Video footage helps an awful lot. And this would be a tip for people listening. Um, I learned this one a few years back when I had a dog that, you know, just his gait was off and I could never figure out why. So we started videotaping the team. This was in fall. So I'd have, you know, somebody else drive the four wheeler. I'd run up ahead and videotape the team going sideways, then come home in slow motion uh -huh. it, or record in slow motion on your phone. and when you slow the video down, if you think a dog has an injury and you watch that dog run in slow motion, it really gives you a better idea of, you can clearly see whether or not they're favoring one leg or another yeah. um, and, and what they're doing. So a lot of times I will film the teams in slow motion during the fall just to try and make sure there are no minor injuries happening because uh, sometimes you can pick something out in slow motion that you wouldn't see in real time yeah so especially especially from the angle that you're at from behind the team filming them from the front or the side mm -hmm. can often uh point out issues that might be going on that you aren't seeing from behind the dog team so yeah, absolutely. You know, and with dog powered sports in general, we're often alone on the trails um, or if we're running with someone else, they're so far behind, they can't, you know, necessarily see what's going on that having that video footage to look back on can be really, really helpful in figuring out why something happened or even identifying, like you said, identifying something that might be a little off that maybe you're having a hard time identifying with your own eye. Right. And, and on a more, um, I don't know, disturbing that we have to even worry about this uh point of view if you ever had an issue with other trail users mm -hmm. having video recordings of what actually happened yep. um times is is important for we've we've actually had that situation happen here in new hampshire um i'm president of a club here of mushers and uh we've had some races where uh some of our racers have had uh, nasty interactions with snowmobilers that tried to run them off the trail. And because they were wearing GoPros at the time, we were able to take the footage, send it to New Hampshire Fish and Game, and they went and found the snowmobilers and, you know, ticketed them. Yeah. So Because it is, uh, you know, reckless driving for them to try and endanger other trail users. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So sometimes, you know, the GoPro video comes in handy for other things as well. But yeah, other than just beautiful trail footage. <laughs> yes. And other times it can be very amusing. <laughs> yeah. I definitely I look back at my footage and often yes. laugh and what is happening here? <laughs> I swear some of my more epic wipeouts, my first thought will be, oh my God, I hope I got that on video. <laughs> I kid you not, my husband and I went to Colorado um, a couple months ago and I had a wipeout um, while we were going. And I, the first thing I said when I, when I stood back up, oh, I hope I got that on my GoPro. And my husband was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Always need a good laugh every once in a while. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Any last tips for people who might be wanting to get into distance racing? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, choose your dogs wisely. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be the, the biggest tip, although it's not always the dogs, but definitely their 
build their heart, their focus is uh, very key. Mm-hmm. Um, and lineage plays into that well too, especially, um, you know, if, if somebody's running Alaskan Huskies, um, some of the shorter coated Alaskans have a lot of issues. I feel on, um, like the races that wind up being super cold, mm-hmm. um, I've seen friends running like pointer crosses or teams running more houndy dogs that they then wind up having a few more issues with their dogs when it turns, goes below zero than right. say I do. Um, the Alaskan Huskies I have are from the distance, more traditional Alaskan lines. So they're close to the same coat length as, uh, some of my Siberians, but that said, most of my Siberians have shorter coats than your average Siberian. So, um, yeah. So yeah, choose your, choose your dogs carefully. I, I personally have found that raising my dogs and training them up myself from puppies always works better, but you know, different people, different, have different ways of doing things. Right. Um, I think the biggest thing is listen and learn. Yeah. If you're, you know, get, talk to people that are doing it, um, you know, go, if you can go handle for somebody that's doing it or even just handle for a race you know, go up and uh, handle for one of these distance races or handle for a musher that's doing a distance race. I think you learn an awful lot doing that. Um, and ask people that have done it before what they're doing. Yep. Um, what they've done. So yeah. Lord knows I will be asking my share of zillion questions of the Iditarod musher veterans that I'm friends with over the next year, if I haven't already, I mean, I know I've been asking questions already for the past year or two or three. So, well, questions are good. You know, I, we are always in a place where we can learn more and certainly asking uh, questions of others who have had those experience can go a long way to helping us uh, further our journey for sure. Well, Jay, thank you so much for spending your uh, early afternoon with us. I really appreciate it. I think, I think a lot of people will be able to look at this and and really get inspired and and learn a lot about what it takes to get to the position that you're in because it's been a a long and I'm sure challenging and rewarding journey for you. (laughs) Yes, all of those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. If you would like to follow Jay Fouché along on her journey to the 2022 Iditarod, you can find her at cybersong.com on Facebook at Cybersong Huskies, and on Twitter at Cybersong Dog. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.